0: What President Trump said today, kind of, he accused uh, Alphabet's Google of rigging its search results to give preference to negative stories about him and really adding his voice to conservatives who have accused social media companies of favoring liberal viewpoints. This is So topical right now. Let's get into it with Mark Bergen, technology reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Also with us is Adam Levin, chairman and founder of CyberScout. He's also former director of the New Jersey Division of Consumer Affairs. Back with us, Adam, joining us uh, on the phone from Scottsdale, Arizona. Mark, break it down. The tweet that we all, eh, we were awake, but it came out this morning. What's going on here?
2: Yeah, so thus far, you know, Facebook and Twitter have, have largely been in this boat um, that, that there's com- complaints both from the, the right-wing media and the, increasingly politicians, uh, Republican members of Congress, um, that they have been suppressing conservative content. Right? Twitter was accused of banning conservatives. Um, Facebook has been accused of this before. Google has not really been in the boat, and, and the president sort of heaped them in this morning. Um, the, the claim here is that the, in, in the past two years, and in particular, these companies have taken a lot of steps to – um, eradicate disinformation and, uh, and state-sponsored propaganda. Uh, that includes with things like with Google Search, um, they have raised their ranking system for authoritativeness. Um, now, part of the problem is that Google, like Facebook and Twitter, does not share any details on how they, um, how the search engine actually works, Right, the nuts and bolts and, and the algorithm, uh, and that you know, for 20 years they've had this very powerful tool that controls access to a large amount of the world's ac- uh, flow of information. Uh, and so that can can create these sort of conspiracy theories and, and the president's claims have not been substantiated, um, that they're actually intentionally suppressing conservative outlets. So, Adam, come on in here,
1: because uh, the president's tweets, specifically these tweets this morning, obviously hit a nerve in, in a lot of ways. But part of what he is playing off of is general sort of worry and, and anxiety, if I dare go that far, about how these – social media uh, companies are set up, how the products are set up, who has control and who's seeing what at, at any given time. I, is he right to be worried? And is, are, are people um, you know, justified in, in being concerned about what's going on, on on these platforms?
3: Well, you know, again, we've had situations where platforms are presented as communities and they're massive advertising platforms trillion-dollar advertising mm. platforms. But that being said, I think it's unthinkable that when you say a publicly traded company the size of Google would jeopardize itself by rigging search results, and Trump, you figure, as a business guy, would understand that. Yeah. And, the, and the concept they have their thumb on the scale is kind of ludicrous, but One thing about the president is he will never miss an opportunity to go after anybody that isn't basically singing his tune.
0: Let's just throw out that Google issued a statement. They said, search is not used to set a political agenda. We don't bias our results towards any political ideology. Jason, this plays into a story we were talking about. We know Jack Dorsey of Twitter is going before Congress next week, facing questions about elections and skewed information and so on and so forth. You know, this goes to the heart, Mark Bergen, of – Twitter, Google, Facebook, are they social media companies? Are they media companies? Mm-hmm.
2: Right. And I think, you know, we're certainly going to hear next week when they testify for Congress the, um, th- that they're, they are platforms, right? And this is how they identify themselves. And everybody's welcome. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that that's been the, you know, they... Uh, YouTube, which is owned by Google, uh, and the CEO has sort of compared themselves to a library where you just go in and check out any book there. Hmm. Uh, and the problem that's come up in the past few years is that there are some t- terrible, disgusting um, books and vile books that they collect in their library, uh, and they've been trying to curb that. Right? You know, ironically, the sort of the, what they've been dealing with is criticism from the left that they were promoting. Um, you know, you, Google had the issue after some of the the recent shootings uh, where they had. Uh, Fake stories that were surfacing at the top of search results, uh, and so they tweak their algorithm to to change that. Um, and, and you know, typically, what happens is that means that a lot of conservative sites that that promote disinformation will be uh, ranked lower. And Adam, looking ahead to next week, as as
1: Carol teed it up well, I mean. The ante is being upped here, right? I mean, you're going to have Dorsey on the Hill. You're going to have Sheryl Sandberg uh, on the Hill. These are the most senior people other than Mark Zuckerberg who have had to testify before Congress. What do they need to say to make people feel better about all of this?
3: Well, I think what they really need to say is that they 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 understand the concerns, the privacy concerns and the questions of censorship that are being raised. I don't know if recently you heard, I heard it in one of the president's rallies where he was saying, i will I'll take fake news over censorship." right <laughs> when, but but I find yeah. it really interesting that when all the news came out about the the efforts, the fake news that was being launched during the the presidential campaigns about two thousand and sixteen, I didn't hear his voice. Yeah. And again, you're, you're dealing with a situation where this is a presidency born of negativity. The stock and trade is negative. And when you're dealing with somebody where it's all about them and there's a great deal of negativity, that just accurate reporting of negativity by those institutions that have tried to be uh, unbiased about it will get heavier play yeah. than organizations that seem like they're – basically PR flags.
0: Well, there certainly seems like there's going to be continued more pressure on Google, on Facebook, on Twitter, in terms of really kind of monitoring their platform, especially when it's, you know, erroneous reports that are coming coming out from their sites. Um, Adam Levin, thank you. Chairman, founder, Cyber Scout, former director of the New Jersey Division of Consumer Affairs. Mark Bergen, our thanks to you as well. Technology reporter at Bloomberg News from our 960 studio in San Francisco. Check him out on Twitter at Bergen. But, you know, like we talked about this with... Um, uh selena wang selena wang thank you very much about jack dorsey's testimony i mean you know what are these sites are they open for everybody what kind of policing are they supposed to do and what's the balance right jason between free space free speech um you know and being open to folks yeah this
1: is going to be much much watched testimony that's happening next wednesday on capitol hill jack dorsey cheryl sandberg a representative to be named later uh, from google as well you're listening to bloomberg business week on bloomberg radio a
0: house is a very, very, very fine house.
1: So housing is at the core of the U.S. economy. That goes without saying. But affordable housing is becoming a more and more important issue. Carol and I talked just before the break about a story that ran on the Bloomberg yesterday about housing in general, especially in the larger, more expensive markets. And one of the most important components of that appears to be affordable housing. So we're going to bring in an expert to tell us more about what he's doing. Steve Rosenberg is the CEO of Greystone, the founder of Harmony Housing. He's here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in Manhattan. Steve, great to be with you.
4: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: Thanks for coming by. So bring us up to speed on sort of what's happening with affordable housing in the United States Right now, it is a hot-button issue, especially if you think about housing in the context of 10 years on from the financial crisis where housing was at the center, center of it all. What are we seeing in the market right now?
4: I think the uh, bottom line in the market right now is that there's a tremendous need for affordable housing in pretty much every city. Um, If you live here in New York, that's all people are talking about on the radio. And it's true in other parts of the country also. Housing prices have gotten so high. And frankly, if families are spending too high a percentage of their income on housing, then how much money do they have to buy food for their families or buy the extra textbook or buy the clothing? And uh, the families suffer if there isn't housing that is affordable and And, and uh, the
0: problem is too that the jobs are in the cities but the cities the housing has gotten so expensive that often if you have a job for a lower income individual they've got to live far away commute or they just can't even afford you know to do it.
4: absolutely and that longer commute means that they get to spend less time with their families and it's just a you know children need parents
0: so how do we and fix this? Because I feel like, Steve, that we've been talking about this for a while. I did a real estate conference out on the West Coast uh, six months ago, seven months ago. Everybody's talking about this, you know, Silicon Valley. How do we fix it? Because we've been talking about it for a while.
4: Right. So I think the, uh, the low-income housing tax credit program really helped a lot. What is that? Um, that's an, essentially, the government created a program where if you are building affordable housing, you can essentially raise the equity to build that housing with by selling tax credits. Right. So if you're an investor in an affordable housing project that qualifies, the bottom line is you'll invest money and as a result of that, you will get just a you'll pay reduced taxes so that the returns to you are appropriate. And uh, that created thousands of units. But notwithstanding that, you still need more. So let's talk about that specifically. We were talking with our colleague Peter
1: Coy about this. And and one of the names that that popped into my mind was Stephen Ross over at Related, Mm -hmm. who I think did made a lot of developments, did a lot of developments uh, based on on this premise. Among your brethren, as it were, in Mm -hmm. in the real estate community, are you still seeing the appetite for that sort of development that includes the affordable housing piece? Are the incentives – enough to get enough people into this business? Um,
4: There are clearly developers that specialize in affordable housing. Um, It would be great if there were more. Mm -hmm. It would be great if the formula for the tax credits was increased. And formula uh, meaning more formula. affordable housing, more worked equity, into it. Okay. same okay. project. You can generate more equity
0: incentivize
4: it, Yeah. Just create the incentive so that people are more drawn to it. Um, the government agencies, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, HUD, affordable housing is your top priority. So they're really going out of their way to create programs to really incentivize borrowers to build affordable housing. So and, why isn't uh, it
0: happening? If the incentives are there, there are those who have the theory that you build luxury, and then the rich people move up to new luxury, and then it kind of trickles down the filtering, middle income. Right? right? filtering. Middle income move into the former luxury homes, and then those middle income become the homes for poor people. So, so, so why there, isn't it – like I just don't understand why it's not happening. So
4: there's no question that we're losing affordable housing, especially in the inner cities where neighborhoods that used to be affordable are not affordable anymore. At the same time um, – Sometimes the capital markets themselves recently have devalued the value of the tax credit equity the low-income housing tax credit. So, so it needs to be
0: there, right? Because as a developer, if you said you can't build in San Francisco unless you put X amount of low-income units in that home, then you'd get it.
4: That's exactly right, or at least, or at least put pressure on developers that if they're if the If the area isn't an affordable area, then they should have to build an affordable project somewhere in proximity to it. And uh, so there are lots of things that can be done if there's just a focus on it. There are enough developers out there that certainly want it, and the market certainly needs it. Right. Steve Rosenberg, chief
1: executive officer of Greystone. You're also the founder of Harmony Housing. We didn't get a chance to talk as much about that. You'll have to come
4: back and uh, bring us up to speed joining us here. Because you are building affordable housing. We are, we're developing affordable housing, we're building it, and we actually started a not-for-profit entity that does nothing other than buys affordable housing and uses all of the cash flow to essentially help families in need.
0: Do come back and let us know how things are going. Steve Rosenberg. Thank you. <laughs> What does a Chinese superpower look like? It's a good question. And is the United States the blueprint for it? Mark Champion uh, writing about it this week in Bloomberg Business Week. Uh, I believe it's on the terminal as well, the Bloomberg Terminal. Mark is senior Europe and Middle East correspondent at Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone in London. We talked to you earlier, Mark. You know that Jason and I really like this story. Tell us what you kind of dug into uh, for this week's issue of uh, Business Week.
5: Uh, Yes, I I really wanted to uh, ask the the question, which seems to have a a very obvious answer, you know, uh, does China want to be a superpower and can it afford to be if it wants to? And, uh, you know, to me, at least, uh, you know, walking into it, it seemed, uh, you know, obvious. The answers are yes and yes. Um, And in some ways, uh, that's correct. Um, You know, China does in no uncertain terms want to be, a great power. It does see itself as a rival to the U.S. It's made that very explicit. Um, it also, uh, in many ways, uh, can afford uh, to, uh, to get a long way uh, towards it. So, for example, uh, just in terms of defense spending, they uh, increased their defense spending more than tenfold uh, since 1990, and yet decreased. The proportion of military spending um, within the overall government budget. Uh, so that it's easily affordable until now. The question then was uh, what kind of superpower do they want to be and what challenges are there to them being able to afford it going forward?
1: Well, and that question of what kind of superpower they want to be is such an interesting one that you dig into, Mark, because essentially your argument is that China is looking to the U.S. as a benchmark, and yet it has some reservations about being a superpower of old. What is it about China and President Xi in particular that might tell us what sort of superpower China could end up being?
5: Well, you know, they they do, they they avoid using the word superpower. Uh, They are absolutely allergic to the idea (laughs) that they are going to replace the U.S. as a kind of global hegemon. Um, Mm -hmm. They are extremely critical um, of the U.S., um, you know, thinking that it, it resorts far too quickly to using military power um, you know, China hasn't been involved in a war uh, since 1979, um, and they insist that you know their way will be different. It will be about uh, you know economic expansion. Uh, look at the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a sort of almost unprecedented uh, international investment initiative. Now, on the other hand, you know when the U.S. started out uh, on the global stage, it was absolutely determined not to uh, to become a British Empire style. Hegemon, either. And yet, somehow, it has ended up with so many interests to protect uh, that it has military bases all over the globe and 11 carrier groups.
0: I mean, bottom line, don't I mean, I feel like we've already called China a superpower in some ways, but as you write in your story, um, and I can't remember if this is uh, somebody you interviewed, but if this is a superpower in the making, it may be a fragile one. Um, I mean, What role will they have in the future? And I think this is what it's all about, right? Whether when it comes to peace and war, the global economy, uh, there's so many questions to be answered about what role will China have in it all?
5: Yes. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that China is going to be a a great power and a determining power. you know, uh, influence, uh, in the coming decades. I don't think there's any doubt about that. The question really is whether, you know, they, they can reach, uh, for example, just the explicit goals of, uh, President Xi, uh, to overtake the U.S. as, as the world's dominant technological power, as the world's dominant artificial intelligence power. Um, and, you know, as, uh, President Putin of Russia once said, uh, you know, he who dominates AI is going to rule the world. Um, so that, that is really the question, whether they displace the U.S., with, whether China comes to set a new set of rules uh, for how trade is done, how uh, you know, international uh, legal life is organized, and so on. Um, and that could be a different looking world. The question again though is is whether they have the economic uh, momentum going forward uh, to really support that and there are questions there, just in terms of demography uh, you yeah. know uh, the, the population already aging um, you know it 's not yet a rich country it 's already aging the population is expected to start declining that hasn 't been the case for previous superpowers That's a big yeah let 's talk about that but, because
1: yeah. that to me is one of the most fascinating. And le- less appreciated uh, pieces of all this, and would really turn this whole sort of historical uh, superpower concept on its head. Does that prevent China f- from becoming a superpower, or does it just make it a different sort of superpower?
5: Well, we we don't know, of course, uh, you know, at this point. But you know, in in terms of there are a couple of firsts that China would have to achieve in order to become, uh, you know, a, a superpower in the full sense, which is, you know, the, the ability to project and dominate uh, around the globe. Um, and that has not been done, you know, when when the U.S. uh, was displacing uh, Great Britain as uh, the sort of Western superpower, if you like, um, uh, you know, between the late 1800s and 1950, uh, its population tripled. Uh, China's population has been uh, its natural advantage, this great resource, as it has moved people out of the countryside into the cities, into the factories, and increased their productivity. That's been... An incredibly powerful uh, economic engine. Uh, but the villages are largely, you know, uh, to overstate uh, grossly, but the villages are largely empty now. Um, you know, cities are now competing for population. Uh, that urbanization is, is coming to an end. Uh, so that's, that's, you know, that source of uh, extraordinary growth is, right. is coming to an end. There has to be a new source. It's not going to come from expanding productivity or expanding, you know, of of, uh, the rural population or of an expanding population. It's going to have to come from somewhere else.
0: Mark, one of the interesting things that I think Jason actually brought it up in our earlier conversation today um, with you is about China not really having any allies. Isn't that crucial to become a superpower that you've got to have allies in this world? We just got about 40 seconds left.
5: Uh, You know, it's got to help. Uh, you know the U.S. and you know came out of the Cold War uh, with its alliances intact from the sort of the you know the, the the great bloc confrontation of the Cold War, and those alliances are kind of force multipliers and influence multipliers, um, and China you know faces that it has strengths of its own in, just in terms of you know money investment, a willingness to do stuff, and not hold governments uh, you know to to account about uh, human rights and things that the U.S. cares a lot about. And and but uh, but those alliances are not there for China,
1: Mark Champion. You are our Bloomberg News senior correspondent in Europe, joining us on the phone from London, uh, staying into the evening for us. We really appreciate it, Carol. This is a must-read. I have oh, to say, it's oh, one great. of these stories from Bloomberg Business Week that you read it. It makes you smarter. <laughs> or at least in my case, it makes me sound smarter when I talk about it because <laughs> there are some really pivotal elements here about. China's role versus the United States. And it starts in Antarctica. It's a really, really nice read.
0: Yeah, it's among our most read stories. I think it's in our top 20 in the past eight hours. So it's among the stories that uh, Bloomberg Terminal users are reading on this Tuesday.
3: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly
1: on Bloomberg Radio. He's our go to guy, Peter Coy, all things economics. He is the economics editor over at Bloomberg Business Week, a frequent guest of ours on our weekly show, which you can hear on Bloomberg Radio and see on Bloomberg Television every weekend. We've already talked to him a little bit about what's going on in the world, but today he's here to talk about a story in the upcoming issue, and it's all about NAFTA. And Peter, it was notable yesterday as all the headlines were coming out about this deal between Mexico and the United States that... Christia Freeland was essentially turning the plane around and heading back to Washington from Europe. She is the point person for the Canadian government, a trusted lieutenant of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Who is she?
6: Fascinating person. She was a journalist until just five years ago. Uh, She worked for the Globe and Mail, Thomson Reuters, uh, economist, Washington Post. And then she decided at the urging of Justin Trudeau, who was not yet then prime minister, to to run for parliament, got a seat, and then he named her to be trade minister. And then 2017 promoted her to foreign minister with the additional portfolio of uh, responsibility for trade with the U.S. So suddenly she's become really one of the most important people in Canada next to Trudeau himself – Uh, managing Canada's most important trade relationship, which is suddenly in great jeopardy now that, as we know, the U.S. has cut a deal with Mexico and is, you know, basically saying take it or leave it to Canada.
0: So quite a task ahead of her. Um, Is she the person for the job based on her background?
6: Well, first of all, she's ultra smart. Uh, You know, a Harvard uh, undergraduate degree, Rhodes Scholar, Uh, you know, a couple of great books she's written and uh she gives these very erudite speeches uh everybody praises her for her intellect she's she's also like an activist type
7: yeah,
2: yeah. i
6: mean she uh takes on causes uh ukrainians uh, uh uh the rohingya muslims um the saudi uh dissidents and and she's quite strong on human rights issues mm-hmm. she's also been kind of uh tough uh in standing up to the u s so after, and Trump specifically. Well, Trump, because after uh, Trump uh, dissed Trudeau by saying he was very weak and dishonest in a, in a tweet, uh, it was Christia Friedland, Friedland who kind of stood up to her and said the government of Canada believes that ad hominem attacks are not the way to go about foreign policy, which is pretty close to like saying, Trump, you're wrong, uh, without using his name. I'd like
0: to be a fly on the wall with these meetings.
6: Yeah, so so that's mm. so going back to your question, is she the right person for yeah. the job? Well, I mean, I've clearly Justin Trudeau thinks so because he's put her there. Um he he did not choose um uh, oleaginous diplomat who would right. try to s- smooth the ruffled feathers. He he wanted somebody who would stand up for Canada's the interests fighter, yeah. and that's what he has. and she, and
1: she does have this uh, this way about her that is very is very Justin Trudeau in a lot of ways. sort of young, global, as you say, um, well educated. I do love this quote that you have uh, in your story about her talking about, Moving uh, from the jour- from the journalist side uh, to the politician side, she said, "I moved from the trade that invented snark and the city, New York, that prides itself on its snarkiness, to the land of smarm and the ranks of professional smarmers as a member of the Canadian federal parliament." So she has a sense of humor. Clearly. Well, I guess that
6: makes us all snarky, then, right? <laughs>
1: I was accused by Alex Steele of being snarky on this very radio show every day. I don't know if Carol Messer really? agrees with that. I know, I know. I don't this know, is, Chip Boy, are you
0: snarky? I, <laughs> um, I
1: learned I learned everything I know from you. Not from Peter Cole.
0: Wow, we're, we're a little cranky and tired today. Um, it is interesting, though, because this could be very crucial to what happens. It's absolutely
6: essential to Canada. I mean, Can- Canadians have tended to be more pro-NAFTA than either Mexicans or Americans. It's been good for them, right? It has been. Uh, And so they mostly uh, liked NAFTA the way it was. And there are a few things in this deal with Mexico that actually Canada kind of does like. Right. For example, uh, one of the things that Canada considered a deal breaker was uh, the five-year sunset that the Trump administration wanted to put in. In other words... NAFTA was going to die if it didn't get re- at end of every five year review period if it didn't get renewed. They came up with something with Mexico, which is a review after six years, but um, not a drop dead kind of review. It would last for ten years. Beyond that, even if for some reason it uh, didn't pass the review. So, so I got to ask you, Peter, while you're here, what do you make of where we
1: stand right now on Tuesday afternoon of the NAFTA talks? What's your prediction as
6: we go through the rest of the week? Do we get a deal? I can't imagine that that they would be able to wrap something up by the end of the day, Friday, heading into the Labor Day weekend. Uh, apparently, there's some wiggle room mm-hmm. that the U.S. could announce that it had a deal uh, in time for the end of the month. So- starting a 90-day review period but then kind of work behind the scenes for the next 30 days before the doc- document actually gets published. So, it's a kind of a little gray area. So, there could be something that would be in train, but it's a d- highly unlikely that you'd have an announced deal by Friday.
0: Is it not a good deal nafta when it comes to the Canadian US component relationship?
6: Good good for whom you talking about for uh, US? Uh
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
6: I mean I, it's obviously trade is a good thing to have. And th- right. Let's step back from the details and say, you know, countries trade with each other because of mutual advantage. You don't sell something to somebody, you know, deliberately at a loss. and You don't buy it at a loss. So tr- more trade tends to be a good thing. That said, of course, there are reasons for various kinds of safeguards and make sure that people aren't behaving, aren't dumping and so on. But on the whole, uh, it would be a terrible thing if we saw U.S. Canadian trade dry up because of this. All right.
1: Peter Coy, economics editor for Bloomberg Business Week, one of our favorites, a constant go to for everyone at Bloomberg on the world of economics, joining us on his story that is on the terminal and on Bloomberg.com today. Can this Canadian save NASA? Great read, Carol.
5: I'm rather my car.
0: All right, everybody, time for the drive to the close. Scott Kuby is with us, chief investment officer at Carson Group, $4 billion in assets under management, on the phone from Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Scott, so I'm following Twitter, Jason and I are, on this Tuesday, and someone just tweeted uh, at uh, me – So, or not at me, but just on my feed. So when do we sell? And I said, well, when bees land on a hot dog stand in Times Square. Wait, what? <laughs> wait, wait. That happened. So when do we sell?
7: Uh, you know that's a fantastic question i don't think it's time to get out because there's a lot of positive news out in the market right now economy is good interest rate environment's very positive i think what we've got to be careful at is a. buying into stocks that have very high valuations that aren't going to be able to meet those expectations and pay off for the long term.
0: Well, wait a minute, because Dave Wilson was just in here with his chart of the day, and he was talking about a peak in profitability thanks to uh, some research uh, from Bob Dahl over at Nuveen, their chief equity strategist. And he is writing that investors will soon have, have to deal with a peak in profit- profitability at use companies. If that's peaking out, and we know it's been very positive and very upbeat, if that's peaking out then we could very easily, of course, get a different equity market, no?
7: Yeah, and I think that what's interesting is you look inside that profitability, what you see is a lot of that has come from technology companies improving their profitability, as well as healthcare and consumer discretionary that's very attached to technology. The average American business really hasn't seen the profitability increase as much, and it's one of the reasons that we have a leaning towards value stocks that have not done as well in this big market, and a bit of a lean away from some of these growth stocks and FANG stocks that have really driven the market so far.
1: So let's talk about tech for a second, because obviously tech is – And especially big tech has been on a lot of folks' minds all day today, especially since the president started tweeting about Google this morning and Google being biased. And obviously we're going to have the big tech names testifying on on Capitol Hill next week. So it sounds like you're saying that big tech may have run its course. Is that just uh, is that a purely business case or how much of this noise from a political and public perspective plays into your thesis there?
7: You know, I think there's a lot of noise, but it's a business case and really a valuation case. The businesses are fantastic. I think the noise is exactly that noise. Um, But there's only so much you can pay for that. And I also think a lot of these companies that have uh, been not done as well from a stock market standpoint are poised to compete. You know, one example uh, with Netflix is we see Disney as a pretty strong opportunity to uh, compete in that direct-to-consumer distribution channel. They're really well poised to do well in that market and I think offer a great competition to Netflix, which has pretty much had a run of the market themselves so far.
1: So, drill down a little bit on Disney for us, because as you say, they've made some moves, and obviously, they came out, um, you know, with the with the Fox deal, caught a lot of attention. It was competitive. What is ultimately beyond the obvious, the fact that they're Disney? What is their competitive advantage uh, against a Netflix, especially given how? Um, What a juggernaut, from a content perspective, Netflix has been of late.
7: Well, I think content is the first of the three things that you need in order to compete in that space. And Disney has tons of content. And with the Fox acquisition, they even have more. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's big, well-named superheroes and all of that that they can rebroadcast. But all that children's programming is just fantastic, should be very appealing. I think the other thing, two things you need is a content distribution platform in the U.S. They'll now own 60% of Hulu with the Fox acquisition, and that takes Hulu into where somebody's in charge of it and can really compete head-to-head with Netflix. And the other is international, and Disney's got a great international franchise, but with the Fox acquisition, they get themselves stronger in Europe as well as in India and Latin America. And I think all three of those uh, really are the key things that put Disney poised to break out of really a trading range that they've been in for the last three or four years.
1: How worried are you about ESPN in the Disney universe?
3: The you juggernaut. Know, no, really?
0: The juggernaut. Let's remind everybody, <laughs> right, when it comes to top and bottom the lines. Profit. Yeah, exactly.
7: It, it, it is a big chunk of the profits. We have seen the cord cutting slow down on that. But we also see some real good opportunities for ESPN to, uh, advertise, or to uh, sell a lot of that directly to big-time sports fans. And so, you know, you get rid of a lot of sports fans. You get rid of 50 channels, they don't care, but you take their ESPN, they're going to be really angry. And they may turn around and pay up for that and leave some of the drama shows shows that uh, they don't watch uh, behind and so even that trend of cord cutting may play into because live sports is about the only thing that people come together and watch uh, all at once and that's a pretty powerful advertising platform that we think will be a great asset to
0: Disney. I'm just curious though Disney's had a nice little run since uh, late March it's up about 14 percent how much of kind of these good expectations are built in already?
7: I, I um, but, you know, it's it's actually trading below the price that it was three years ago. And mm-hmm. so there's some positive news in there, as you're seeing. But we really think that the synergies here are really powerful. We still see a potential for another 20-plus percent rise yeah. in the stock over the next year.
1: Wow. wow. That's a big call. Yeah. Scott Kuby, he's the chief investment officer of the Carson Group, overseeing about $4 billion. Joining us on the phone from Omaha, Nebraska. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.